Everyone runs away from pain, dodging the truth it comes with. But you are done with limiting your greatness in the shackles of fear. You see fuel in the fire. You taste ripe fruit in real answers. You move to the drums with wild expression. Enter From Pain to Gain, the podcast about identifying pain so you can ultimately gain health and wealth. Because without identifying a mountain, how can you climb it? Here's your host, Ivan Alpha. Welcome back to From Pain to Gain. Today we're talking how we create monsters. That was my um, interpretation of what a monster looks like and sounds like. <laughs> Did that terrify you, Jason? <laughs> I was I was scared. Yes. Uh, what's <laughs> you were I, I thought you were I thought you were the monster for a moment. I didn't know what to do. You're gonna sing that Metallica song, <laughs> some kind of monster. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so today we're talking Jeffrey Dahmer, all the things that surround his being. And so let's go ahead and get rolling. Uh, Jason brought up a great quote from him talking about how he personally objectified his victims, dehumanized them. And that's kind of a, a monster perspective, right? He would even become a monster and make them seem to be a monster. So yeah, he uh, he's he said he objectified them, so he essentially removed their humanity and saw them as objects. So objectified them in a in a sense that they were an object for his is to satiate his desire, and so their humanity, their dignity, everyone want to sort of describe it that was gone, and he saw them essentially like an like a physical object, you know, like like a, eating a sandwich. You know, it was it was someone just became someone to satiate his own uh appetite yeah and we're going to co cover a lot of ground today but we also are putting a mirror up of how are we actually monsters and like deciding not to raise a child as a village and kind of you know creating a wall of everybody in the village that doesn't want to help you know as strangers we have this now perception of you know everybody that's a stranger is out to get you which is valid but uh, we also have to think about this as, as being monsters ourselves and that we love to see negative news. So in one BBC study in 2014, researchers in the U.S. and Canada tracked volunteers' eye movements as they browsed online news sites. And they found that even those who professed a preference for positive stories actually spent more time scanning the negative ones. You know, the old uh, traditional... Uh, newspaper line if it bleeds it leads so we're kind of addicted to this sort of outrage and so we're gonna kind of talk through that as we roll through this in our usual flow of the cage complacency atrophy guilt and escape i forgot the last one i forgot how to escape the cage myself <laughs> jump right in and also another thing that jason and i talked before starting is how do we look at this from a, 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 the perspective of the parents in terms of active harm versus passive harm? So a lot of ground to cover. Let's go ahead and jump right into complacency. Um, on complacency for Jeffrey Dahmer, I feel that, you know, just looking at the parental side, of course, uh, this is a limited view from my perspective. I'm not being a parent uh, currently, but letting him do everything he wanted to do, basically, you know, going and digging up bones and 
studying them and opening ripping guts apart uh and kind of being fascinated with that i think should have had some degree of uh, a boundary on it as opposed to yes do whatever brings you joy if including if it involves death you know there's adults that still don't know how to handle death and we're talking about even friends i i cried at a friend's uh, a funeral a few years ago i didn't know how to handle that we're we're in this case talking about parents allowing a child to actively be involved in death of animals uh and studying it and you know performing surgery and all sorts of so things. what you're you're saying is that be- that behavior at an early age should have been a signal for them to engage with their son in a more uh intentional way is that what i'm hearing from you yeah in a kind of more direct way um and there were other things that occurred like uh he had kind of signs of abandonment issues too. Uh, one of his parents, the mother, had uh, abuse issues, so she was kind of d- disconnected. And we're we're also talking about that era where the father is not really an emotional character. So you remove the mom, who is traditionally more emotional, uh, supportive character, uh, with her drug abuse and stuff like this. And then the father, which is traditionally not known for that sort of stuff. And so it's kind of building it up for uh, pain, basically. Uh, yeah. Yeah. What are your well, thoughts? And t- well, two, a couple of things came out in one of the interviews I watched him uh, share. He, he said um, his motivation or his reason for, for doing it was the, he liked the power he had over his victims and he wanted control. And so control, um, power and control are most, they seem to be most manifested um, in life, life or death, and 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 then sexual activity, because both of those are very, um, there's something about them that, that to, uh, to assert control, to assert power over those two dynamics, um, sort of gives the most, um, I don't know what what the way to say it. The most energy to to uh, to that pa- that desire for power. So, <clears throat> um, so those are a couple. That's interesting. Just the control piece. Um, you know, this idea. I mean, for most of us, we tend to be uh, want to have control over ourselves, over our lives, over whatever facet of the world that that we have, and and we want that control for some particular reason. There's some there's some benefit that we're likely wanting, you know, and, and there is both an unhealthy aim or desire for control and, and, and a point when that control becomes the object uh, or the aim of our, uh, of our pursuit, as opposed to a vehicle towards something greater. So in other words, to have control, um, you know, for the sake of like having my business, I have a business, I'm a freelancer and having control over what clients I'm, you know, understanding, having that visibility, what I'm doing, having the ability to work on those projects. There's a, there's a sense of having that control that allows me to be productive, but there's also a point where in that type of control could manifest into something where it's actually becomes destructive. And so, um, so that's, those are a couple things that come, come to mind. Yeah. You know, there's a couple things that came up when you were talking about that. Uh, and this all ties into complacency directly because uh, allowing things to happen is, you know, just the, that yeah. goes into our natural thing. But um, there's two things I grew up with. Uh, number one, the lion analogy. And number two, 
kind of uh, wanting to become an adult before I was supposed to, uh, having that sense of control. And that, that was effective, but I'll jump into that. Uh, the lion analogy, um, I don't know if you grew up with your father that would say, you know, you got to go in the world as a man like a, a roaring lion. And anybody who messes with you or anybody around you gets the hammer. And, and you just got to uh, this it encourages a toxic masculinity of sorts, mm -hmm. which is inherently flawed. I've come to learn in the last few years. It's taken a lot to pull that out of me. It's still something I'm pulling out, but <laughs> it kind of encourages you to become your own God and that you can't do things that may hurt the family, which will ha happen. It's a natural part of life. Um, you have to be overwhelmingly protective, uh, you have to be almost to some degree perfect in the way you manage your household. So it's a lot of pressure, which leads to just falling out. So that, that was one issue that I see in the last generation. That was a massive thing that, that really should have been quashed. Uh, then the, there's a, the next aspect, which is becoming an adult before needed. Uh, so there's, there's reports of Jeffrey, um, going into alcoholism as early as 14 and clearly that's a sign that there was something uh, not going on that his needs uh caused them to act out in an unhealthy way and that became a pattern for him yeah and in, in the interview he does describe uh his compulsion his behavior towards um his victims as an addiction and so his addictive behavior was with alcohol while he was in the military, which led to his dismissal. And then that addiction shifted towards something much more horrific. But to your point, there was something under, there was something rooted underneath it. And I think uh, in terms of complacency, I think the, 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 one of the root issues there that, um, that I think we are, we are often complacent about, particularly um, if we haven't thought about it or, or depending on, sort of the worldview or religion that we bring to the table which is if if we just assume that our kids are good kids that are going to grow up and become good people just automatically it's just in their nature to become that then we might become complacent in how we raise them we may not discipline or or, or raise them in a way that would imply that they could actually mm -hmm. um become something that is to our own uh horror uh very horror very um uh ethically wrong and, and doing terrible things and so we have to i think at the fundamental level ex um have a a mindset at a at a level that that um that they are sinful creatures that they can uh, and if that sin grows it can manifest in larger and more impactful ways. And so to be complacent is to, is to fail to see that possibility and to fail to raise them um, in terms of dealing with their behavior and, and their hearts. And it's hard. I mean, we've got five kids and, and uh, sometimes it feels like we're failing on all levels, but, uh, but we have to continue to sort of expect that that that's a possibility and what can we do to root out these issues and deal with the sin at the earliest um possible level and as soon as possible because all of our sin starts in our heart and then it grows into something much bigger and at some point it turns into a monster a dragon 
of which cannot be contained. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with ourselves as well as with others. Um, and all of us, you know, might have to deal with, with that at different levels. Um, but yeah, even, even, uh, addiction like alcoholism, which may, um, seem pale in comparison to, uh, to, uh, Dahmer's uh, behavior, um, is, is quite destructive. So, yeah, that's a natural thing about addiction, especially sexual addiction is that it ties in other addictions. It's kind of like when I go to the movies, I take a hot Cheetos and I, I pull in, uh, and my popcorn, just a bunch of hot Cheetos and tastes better. Because now we have a kick. But what I noticed is now I want a Sour Patch Kids. (laughs) (laughs) Your your appetite is growing. (laughs) My flesh in a similar way as a sexual sin is like, give me, let me me tie all these things into knots. Which brings in the, the concept of an emotional knot, which is another thing entirely. But it's profound in that if if we have this emotion tied around, if I cry, I will be uh, disciplined or abused, now I have a knot that I can't undo easily myself because now I have this, this knot. So, And I, also- I would add, too, just from a society standpoint, there is sort of a theme or a uh, uh, um, an underlying belief that's, that people should be able to pursue their desires and move towards what they want. Mm-hmm. sort of unrestricted and i think that's based on a uh, a high level view of humanity in the sense that well everyone sees good people and they're just going to pursue good things but those restrictions when it comes to uh you know our sin and our our depravity those restrictions are positive <laughs> they yeah. restrain our evil yeah and um i think about you know adam and eve after they sin in the garden and and um there's a curse. God puts a curse on Adam and Eve. And we sort of think, wow, why would he do that? But the curse he puts on Adam is that he would have to till the soil and and struggle to bear fruit on the land. But there's something, there's a merciful part of that, um, which is to give him something of which he needs to struggle as a way to prevent him from uh, sinning. Right. You sort of the, the common phrase, you know, idle hands are the hands of the devil or something like that. Yeah. And so if we have these restrictions and these limitations, it can actually help us um, as much as we might fight them. Um, it may limit the ways and the damages of our sin. And so, um, you know, God wants to deal with that sin. And then the more that that's dealt with, the more freedom that he allows us to uh, to tap into. I know you're hurting to get to that that next yeah. the framework piece of this, bro. Just <laughs> yeah, yeah. Let me put a button on this complacency, and we'll jump right into that with atrophy. So, to wrap up my my second point too of um, kind of being an adult before it need be, it tied that into my adult living too, and that uh, even in relationship, I would act like an adult. So the people mm-hmm. closest to me, I would expect them to not behave right. And so I had this kind of high and mighty attitude, which would obviously pan out into atrocious ways um, and lead towards tornadoes of issues. And I've been tornado. Yeah. <laughs> it's something that my my current, you know, amazing wife has been able to help kind of unravel in a beautiful way. And it's a subject of we think as men we want 
a submissive woman that will do anything we want, but actually I've gotten the most joy out of the challenges that my wife and I have had and the growth from that has been amazing. And the reason why I even married her in the first place, as opposed to a kind of previous woman that, you know, I guess didn't want to stir the pot and, you know, cause my tantrums could be scary and I understand yeah. that. Um, so that, that's something to also understand. And yeah, and well, and that kind of ties were, into what I was saying yeah. in terms of like having that tension as much as it can be, uh, restrictive, diffi- restrictive or difficult. It's actually for a greater good and it ends up generating a, a better benefit. Yeah. And that atrophy, you know, we, in our society <laughs> leads us to, if I, if it's good for me, I'm going to do it. And nobody could tell me one way or the other, which ties into, the framework um and that is generally people don't have a framework for good and evil as jason said before we started recording so uh I'll, jason go ahead and start off on this one yeah so uh one of the most intellectually resisted ideas of humans particularly in the western world is the resistance towards human depravity that we are depraved we are sinful uh, we do evil things. Um, often we kind of want to resist that idea, maybe at a minimum, you know, if we kind of say, well, some people are like that, but not most people. Most people are good. And there's goodness in everyone, but but there's also, you know, that potential for evil as well. And so if we go throughout the world expecting that everyone's going to be good people and um, they're going to do good things and they become great, uh, great citizens, just without uh, just sort of organically without any intervention without any training without any education without any discipline then what we're going to do is we're going to go through life and we're going to face the consequences of of that sin people are going to hurt us people are going to say terrible things about us they're going to do things to us and when that happens it's going to be uh, catastrophic for us because we won't have a category of which to to understand it and so we're essentially facing something that we were entirely unprepared for. And I heard, uh, I heard um, it was Jordan Peterson mentioned that people that uh, are, that experience these mass shootings that, that are survivors of them, the people that, um, that sort of expect that and, and, and know that that's a possibility, they fare much better after the fact than those that never could have imagined it happening or imagining happening to them. And so that expectation um, also is a factor in just how we can recover from it. And so we coddle ourselves by pretending um, that the world is a safe and good place just uh, naturally versus um, that the, versus accepting that the goodness that we see and that, that is out there is often fostered and facilitated and intervened um, through good people. And, um, and so that framework for understanding good and evil is, is absolutely necessary for us to, one, to get through life and, and to, to get through it well, to accept the suffering and to, uh, carry our cross as, as Jesus says. And, um, and also to be able to help others through that as well. Does it make sense? Yeah, that makes sense, man. Man, you, you cover a lot of ground in two sets. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing 
to React is uh, the the value of of starting at a point of I know nothing or rather here I'm going to simplify it. The value of starting at I am sinful and ignorant. I remember a few months ago, you know, you and I are part of a pretty awesome group. We we hang out in North Georgia mountains area or whatever. Uh, sometimes locally here at Korean Barbecue, and I said in a group of five people in a restaurant you know i i think we're not smart i think we are bad people um and if we don't check on it that we could do bad things and the awesome thing about the christian brothers around me none of them disagree <laughs> we're talking about you an amazing guy uh craig who's done enormous amounts of things in business daniel uh he's been in this career long auditor position and just worked his way up in the rungs uh i forgot who else was there but like dudes that are serious geniuses were like yeah and i think the value of that starting point is number one you could be acting a lot like floyd mayweather in life because he doesn't go into any boxing match thinking i am better than everybody else no he still practices puts in the work as if it's the last fight of his life he yeah. pretends he's ignorant, he's sinful, he's prone to all sorts of uh, deviations. Um, and of course, he still has an ego about it, but <laughs> that's part of his strategy too. Um, so that's a, a great starting point uh, for that. But I think it's it's amazing to decide not to have a framework. Um, and I hope this doesn't sound high and mighty, but to think that you are capable of being good in a society where broadcast media, food, marketing, and basically every aspect of day-to-day -day life is actively attacking you. To think you're going to be just fine is kind of a almost crazy position. Well, and the problem with, uh, you know, uh, there's a book I'm reading called Low Anthropology by David Zoll, and he kind of talks about low anthropology versus high anthropology. And low anthropology would essentially be sort of accepting the, the sinful depravity of humanity versus a high anthropology would be, you know, ex assuming everyone's good and then and they will become good and they have good intentions and they'll do good. Um, the problem with a high anthropology, as he puts it, is that um, when we do become uh, subject to this, our own sin, when we do uh, fall short, we then start to hide it because we assume everyone else is good and they've got it together. And I'm the only one that doesn't. And so I can't talk about it because then that means I'll lose my status among everyone. And so to your point about our group is part of what we're trying to foster there is like, hey, we are all broken, corrupt, uh, sinful people. And we're struggling with that every day in a variety of different ways. And we talk about it so that it gives permission for other people to talk about it because um, it's the you know, the scriptures talk about what you bring to the light becomes light. And if it stays in the darkness, um, it becomes darkness and, and, it, and it controls us. And so if we bring those struggles to the light, um, you know, like in Alcohol's Anonymous, you know, the first step is admitting you have a problem. And so admitting it and sharing it and, and, and putting it out there removes a lot of its power. The secrecy is part of its power and mm. um and it still has power even when it's not a secret um but it diminishes it and um and then that gives us another kind of it gives us a step to work through 
um, you know, there's other steps that follow, but, but that first step is, is a big one. Yeah. It's almost like, uh, changing the lens on your, your eyeballs when you could confess a sin and, and be mature enough to also know <laughs> if somebody judges me for it, that's not, you know, that's not for me. Um, well, and that part of that judgment is the implication is that, um, from whom we we sort of put people in a judge position you know we want to be liked by people we want them to approve us so we need and we need a way for us to be freed from that judgment and so that's where christ's um sacrifice on the cross essentially we are judged before god as if we are christ when we accept his sacrifice and so we can be judged by other people and not in it and in it and uh be in a place where it doesn't negatively harm us to be judged by them because their judgment is not supreme value to us our what's supreme value is is how god sees us yeah and it's like that unending love which is easier to to take in um but don't get me wrong you know if i sin against my wife i confess to her it's not easy i mean yeah i mean she's a special type of woman that will not necessarily emotionally be outraged but she will go straight into okay what are you going to do about it what's your plan you know so i'm blessed in that regard um but yeah that's that's a low and that's a low anthropology way of thinking about it it's not really like oh my gosh i can't believe you did that it's a yeah okay well yeah you did that how are we gonna fix it right and so that's and it's an intervention in a sense a mini intervention so yeah which is so unnatural in today's life we've atrophied that muscle yeah yeah it's funny because there's someone um that i spoke to um and he kind of confessed something to me um and he was you could almost tell like he was sort of bracing for my response and i was like okay so what's next like (laughs) there's there's something about like that mild response (laughs) he's like okay um that is like like your wife saying okay what are you gonna do about you know it's it's people are bracing for like this negative reaction oh my gosh you're you're a horrible person yeah versus me like yeah, I'm a horrible person too. So what are we going to do? What what can yeah. we do next? You know, yeah. that's the sign of a, a truly matured believer is that it's like, okay, well, what's next? You know, is, uh, yeah. which is that that's even hard to take in sometimes too, because it's kind of a, not a coddling, not a nurturing perspective, mm-hmm. uh, which for a guy like me, who was an adult during childhood, that's kind of useful to be coddled and nurtured, you know? Like, oh, okay, let me, let me hold you. Let me show you your love. Let me show you a, a inkling of what God's love is, right? Which is, uh, you know, being able to cry out loud in church during worship for me. Of like, wow, this is like my best friend. And, you know, okay, uh, we're going off on a tangent. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Atrophy. <laughs> um, I think we've covered a lot of ground here. So let's move on to guilt. And guilt, I think, is where this monster, if we want to call him that, 
comes to really sit. He doesn't work into the escape, especially as a child isn't allowed to escape into a healthy way of acting out, um, of addressing his concerns, his needs. And so this is where the dangerous hap things happen, where you, you stay stuck in guilt, which builds into shame, which builds into nobody will ever take me the way I am. Nobody will ever fulfill, fulfill the needs that I have. Um, and I'll confess this. I... I had that perspective for a long time too of like how could one woman fulfill the needs that i have and that is just the flesh talking right it's like how oh could... so you're essentially questioning god's order of things like it won't satisfy you is yeah what do you mean yeah yeah i had that perspective for a long time which what what informed that what was it just what you think it was a cover story because it's what well, you wanted something else or do you think there was something? I think it's a matter of not wanting to address the real issues. Mm, okay, yeah. Um, what's Which would mean essentially you're chasing solutions that won't actually solve the problem and you, you never end up stopping because you never deal with the problem itself. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of it. Of course, when you try to think of something, it, it flies <laughs> away, right? Well, we can come back to it when it, when it strikes you later. <laughs> <laughs> I hope it doesn't strike me. Strike me down. <laughs> but it, 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 I guess it per perpetuates a, oh, they just didn't do something I, I liked, so they're not meant for me, you know? So I'm going to move on. Or I'm going to have a, uh, I'm going to be in, in dating in perpetuity because when this person fails in this gap i have this fallback but that's not a valuable way to live like there's seven trillion people or seven billion people that that could apply to right uh how could i care for one person if i'm constantly just moving on when one somebody has a gap um and then from an emotional perspective it's not valuable either because there's no way i could manage my own emotions much less uh my wife's now i'm adding another <clears throat> Like I'm adding all sorts of variables I can't control, uh, which only leads to, again, that perspective of uh, this of Jeffrey Dahmer's. When this open loop goes so big, rage sets into place, mm -hmm. and rage manifests, and obviously what we know as serial killers, mass shooters. Um, abusers, and that's just the way it goes. Um, well, when I, what I would add to that is, uh, particularly in terms of the rage uh, or maybe resentment, bitterness, um, contempt, is uh, the story of Cain and Abel, right? And so Cain is as is angry. He's angry at God, and so he's also angry at Abel for for being what he's unable to be. Right. And so in an act of destroying the ideal, which is able, the ideal, uh, um, he, he destroys the ideal. And then he, by doing that, he also is able to, um, lash out against God because what is he going to do to God? God's all powerful. He has no, no power to, to face it, but he could destroy what God loves and mm. God loves able. And so Cain's, uh, you know, rage, uh, leads to him killing 
in the first human murder um, to Abel. And, um, and interestingly enough, um, God doesn't strike him down, which seems bizarre. Like, well, he just killed Abel. Why didn't you kill him back? You know, <laughs> but he actually, and he actually protects Cain. He doesn't allow anyone else to kill him. And I think part of that is because he's, he's wanting to break the cycle of violence. He doesn't want to perpetuate it. And, um, and, and there's more to it than that, that that's one angle. And so that perpetuation of the rage, it's kind of the, you can keep the rage going and continue to fuel it. And it goes back and forth and back and forth. And mm-hmm. if you look at even just in the Ukraine Russian war, just how, how the sides are talking about each other, you, you know, how they started and how they are now. And there's, you know, a lot of people have died and been hurt and, and, and I, man, I'd be angry too. And I'd want to lash out at the other side as well because of the wretchedness. But at some point, somebody has to stop the violence. Someone has to intervene. Yeah. Man, this makes you think of that book, uh, Out of the Shadows by Patrick Carnes, that really talks about this stuff. Um, The thing is, that's kind of focused more on sexual sin, but it applies to so many things like what we're talking about. Um, and how our perception becomes our reality. Uh, and uh, I could go on a whole different tangent with that. So I'm just, <laughs> I'll stop myself there. So uh, for guilt, is there any other last points? Um, oh, you know, we should touch on this, which is the parent, the parent piece, the active harm versus p- passive harm, active harm versus passive harm. Um, uh, Jason, especially because you're a parent of five children, could you speak to that? Yeah, so uh, active harm is I've done something specifically wrong. I've said something to hurt you. I have hit you. I've uh, stolen from you. I've I've done something active to harm you in some way. And and there's a lot of categories for that. You know, abuse of of different time of different kinds, um, but also just treating people poorly, um, talking to them. Uh, talking um about them in an in a in a like a deceptive way or you know lying about them or or spreading rumors or whatever the second would be uh, a passive uh, harm which is which is harder to nail down and i think it's um it can be harder to uh to pinpoint because it's it's not an active thing so it's a passive thing so maybe you allow someone to abuse somebody else uh, maybe you allow someone to to manifest a behavior that they shouldn't um you know you're at a table and someone's talking about their wife in a really horrible way and you don't say anything so you didn't necessarily say the horrible thing but you did allow it um um but i think you know in the case of kids it's a little bit you have more responsibility for your kids so if you allow them to do and say and explore things they shouldn't um and you continue and especially if you find out and you continue to let it persist then you are um, you are guilty of, of allowing that to continue. Um, and so we have a responsibility to both, um, to with, withhold our, with, you know, not actively harm people, but also not to passively harm people. And, um, and so that's the first part of it. Does that make, does that yeah. explain it well? Yeah. Well, a very basic example of that I could relate to is, uh, my niece and nephew, I hadn't seen them for probably three years or something like that. And I visited a couple weeks back with the wife and I felt this calling in the middle of a car ride to say, Hey, I'm sorry. I haven't called you in years. 
haven't visited in years and it it pains me uh and i'm sorry Could, will you forgive me for that and um so that that's the kind of repentance thing mm -hmm. uh, and i think it does me. yeah yeah and what how that ties into guilt i think is we are um going to actively and passively harm other people harm our children and when we do that we're probably gonna we are guilty of it um and we may and we're likely to feel guilty at least at some point when we recognize it to your point maybe later on mm -hmm. but there's also a dynamic um, particularly with addictions and compulsive behaviors where we feel guilty and we keep doing it and we can't stop so we're like trapped and so the guilt persists because now we just become more guilty of it it's like we keep doing it we become more guilty and we're trapped in this cycle mm -hmm. and um and so that's that's a difficult thing to to get out of and repentance is one way to do that sometimes we can't even repent we need we need someone to intervene for that repentance to even be a possibility and um or a situation or scenario might have to unfold for it to to, to happen um so yeah uh, i had this visual last night of that very uh, kind of description which is if you don't escape your cage in a timely fashion the ceiling will start to come down and the more you kind of allow that cage ceiling to come mm -hmm. down the, the heavier it is going to be to kind of pull pull it up right? yeah the, in many the cage cases, become it becomes a coffin cage becomes a coffin <laughs> cage to coffin my next book thank you jason <laughs> And it's more aggressive because you have metal bars around you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's, and in that case, now we're talking about you can't be delivered from that unless somebody else outside the cage comes in. And yeah. The even thinking of that, that somebody else will know my sin is also something that I was terrified of. And I'm sure a lot of other people are too. Um. I'm just going to say this to anybody going through that. If you are, it's something you could work to. If you decide to do it, it's not that scary at the end of the day. Um, you may it have feel scarier than it than it is. Yeah, yeah. You may have people that do decide to judge you, but know that that's not of God. That's not God's representative. And the and I would also I would add is the the freedom we experience far outweighs the uh, the um, the fear that we might have. Yeah, it makes me think of a one time I had a uh, a guy. Uh, what was he? It was like a weekend retreat at a church over here close to Stone Mountain, and this guy mentioned that his millionaire uncle denied him a hundred dollars to put food in his belly. Uh, he had just transitioned to Atlanta and was going through a hard transition time. And so he had this hatred in his heart for 10 plus years for this uncle. Like, how could you just deny me a hundred dollars? And, you know, there's understandable anger there. However, tying that up and not confessing that anger and not just saying, I forgive him for himself 
once he decided in that weekend retreat to say, I forgive him, not even calling the uncle, he literally said the lens of his life went from a dark shade, the way he even looked out in the clouds. It was <laughs> all dark and gloomy for 10 plus years. It yeah. all just lit up. Mm. So that's the power of confession. Um, and if you don't necessarily feel safe doing it, with your spouse, maybe just do it with a professional. Uh, I encourage that. So, uh, any last points before we move on from guilt, Jason? No, I think we can jump into escape more explicitly. Okay. Escape. So, you know, just the opposite of what happened on Jeffrey Dahmer's side. I, I feel like if he had a healthy, uh, nurturing mother, a healthy, perhaps healthier uh, father, it didn't sound like he was perhaps toxic, but uh, maybe if he filled in that role of a nurturing and also, uh, you know, a man of, of fatherly tendencies, which is more masculine, a more disciplined approach, a more kind of reverential approach, uh, things may have been differently for him to be able to escape. Uh, well, and what I would add to that is... Um, in the interview that I watched, so right now he's in prison for 999 years, and um, he's uh, he made uh, they, the lady who's interviewing him asked him like, if you weren't in prison, would you keep doing it? And he said probably. Like he was his compulsion was still there, and he couldn't control it, right? And so whatever uh, whatever's going on is his. Um, prison is containing him, is actually giving him what he was missing. And so, um, to your point, it would have been nice for whatever that was to have been given to him at an earlier age through his parents and community. It wasn't. So, but at least in the society we're in, there's an opportunity for him to be in a context where that compulsion is, is stopped. And so, um, so it's kind of an interesting just dynamic to think that, uh, you know, someone can can be imprisoned physically, but be kind of free from their sin um, in reality. So I think sometimes that, you know, we, we, we resist those limitations, but those limitations may be our saving grace. And particularly, if he's if he were to have more victims, it is saving those uh, potential victims from becoming victims. And so, there's a lot of people that are spared from his evil um, because he's his uh, his evil is contained. Yeah, <clears throat> man, so much there. I'll draw this out first. Yeah. Sin. How could, how could somebody expect sin for three decades to be just put away in two two days? Yeah, yeah. It's uh, been growing for that long. It's gonna yeah. take a lot of time to starve it. Yeah, and it's something I've even had to personally kind of come to terms with. And it, you mentioned, I think, in the last episode, the your kind of walk out of pornography addiction i've had the similar walk out and that that pisses me off that it, did, it didn't <laughs> happen and i right still on. have to fight and so i think what we 
don't realize is that the further we allow this timeline to extend, the more it's going to affect our lives, the more it become unmanageable in our li daily lives, career, the more it'll be unmanageable in spousal life. Mm -hmm. um, and probably all sorts of other things because you're used to this. This is safe. This is what I know. Mm -hmm. uh, you're going to add other things I don't know? No, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Which kind of speaks to that other point I was saying about yeah. how the flesh would just keep on wanting more and more of like, oh, mm -hmm. because I don't know this thing or how to handle this thing, I don't like to be challenged. I'm just going to keep on with what yeah. I know is safe, even though it harms me. Yeah, because we're putting, uh, you know, we're putting something as our whatever is most supreme in our life you know whether it's god if it's not god then it's we would call it an idol as christians and so if we shape our lives if we live our lives around that idol it shapes who we become and our identity and how we behave and so if we're spending years and years and years um around this idol of of of, of lust and pornography and and that uh, that outlet, then it's it's going to shape how we see ourselves, how we see other people, how we see women, and w whether we realize it or see them. Yeah, it may not even be explicit in the sense that we're thinking of it that way, but it has a an effect. And, and in fact, sometimes we won't even know what the effect is until after we've had enough time to sort of uh, that same amount of time to sort of be outside of it to go. Okay, this is some of the ways it affected me. And, um, and I have to now reconcile to your point earlier, like what's the root issues. I have to deal with some of those root issues that yeah. were, um, driving the compulsive behavior. Sadly, there's also, uh, we haven't talked about the downward spiral, which sometimes people have to go all the way to the bottom where there's legal consequences to see. Um, I was mm -hmm. blessed in that my bottom was when I was single and I decided this doesn't feel good, but there are folks out there that are actively in the spiral, downward spiral, and will not have an inclination to change, to put in the work and that, the intense work, by the way, in this, until they hit a bottom where there's now a family involved, there's careers, there's businesses. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, sometimes it requires more severe consequences for us to uh, to be willing to change. The pain has to be severe enough that we go yeah i guess i i better do something or it's good and for me i i do think having a a, a uh, christ-like example of parents and family and community and church growing up was hugely important for me because when i moved from arizona to atlanta um and i was going down my spiral i had a contrast i had the contrast of what i grew up with and i had a contrast of what life was like for me now and i saw ahead of where i was going and i went okay i see where this is i'm going to hell right like i'm i'm not saying that in an eternal sense i'm saying like i'm creating a life of hell for myself because that hell inside of me is coming out right and so i'm walking down into the darkness and i know where that leads and i don't want to go there so god help me because my way is just taking me down that road and i want to go back to where i came from i want to mm -hmm. go back to heaven in that sense yeah. and so back to the garden of eden and um and so having that poss i think for many people they may not have that the alternative possibility of the garden of of heaven of of life um with god versus life without him and so um 
that's where our, our model and our example and our intervention is important for other people is because they may um, they may not have that, and that may be something of which we need to give to give. Yeah, man. Curious in your we'll call the whatever zone um, the crushing zone because <laughs> that was a hard time for you. Uh, how do you reconcile carrying your cross? while getting uh, what at the time was that the or not getting what at the time was the desires of your heart or your flesh yeah so it's kind of a bat like a dance or a battle or a or a back and forth um there's probably an ideal way to handle that in a, in a non-ideal way um i sort of uh think of it like there's two wells. There's one well that's like the right healthy well. That's the order of God in terms of marriage and family and how things ought to be and, and how sexuality should be contextualized within that. And then there's the other well, which is like a toxic well, like, or you can call it like a, a pond, a, a toxic scummy pond, you know? And so I have this thirst, right? And I can drink from the healthy well, or I can drink from the pond. And if the if I'm denied access to the help to the healthy well, um, then I go jump into the swamp, right? <laughs> right. And so part of it is recognizing, like, am I able to? Am I willing to not jump in the swamp when I don't have access to that well? Right. So if someone is single, right, they might want to, um, you know, have those sexual desires fulfilled. And so they may jump into the swamp, right? Um, but it, 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 the same could happen even if you're married if, if in certain contexts. So am I willing to just not jump into the swamp even when I don't have access to that? Well, I, I think that's there's a there's a development there. And I think the way the way to do that, the possibility is ultimately to recognize that the source of water, the source of life is God himself. And so with him as my source, I can I can fast, so to speak, from either option because um, the well of God is ultimately um, the, the source of living water. And so that relationship, um, him sustaining me, you know, he sustained Jesus when Jesus went into the wilderness and he was in there for 40, 40 days and, and fasted. Um, it was God who sustained him. And so... God can sustain us too. Now it's, it's no difficult matter because I kept jumping into the swamp in different ways and coming out and then God have to clean me up and, and I'd have my act together for a little while. And then I jump back into the swamp and <laughs> uh, I was the swamp, the swamp thing. <laughs> um, swamp and, then, uh, then, and the problem is, you know, I jump into the swamp, I get swampy and then I go into the, into the clean well. And then I, I get it all toxified, you know, cause I'm bringing right. my swampiness into it. Yeah. So, um, so it is a, a very difficult thing. Um, but I do think, um, the way you feed an appetite is you feed it, right? The way you, um, kill an appetite is you stop feeding it. And so, um, I, it is, I think when it comes to sex, it's difficult because there is a healthy outlet and there's an unhealthy outlet and we have to differentiate the two. And that is no simple matter. That is a very difficult process. Yeah, it's, it's truly a battle. But the something that <clears throat> helps me is uh, 
when you think about a battle, it's, it's just a battle in a larger scheme of the war, and the war has been won by Christ. So Yeah, yeah, if we, and that was one of the things that helped me in terms of the guilt and the shame was to recognize that, oh, the battle was won, and I am victorious, and I can live in that victory. So mm. I just had this revelation that that was true, and it helped me, um, I was able to realize, oh, the cage was unlocked. I just needed to step outside of it, but I was staying inside of it because, um, it was, uh, you know, I, I didn't, there was various reasons, but part of it was that I didn't realize that I had victory over the cage. I already had the, the key was already, or the door was already unlocked and I just needed to walk out. Um, cause Christ unlocked it for me. So. That yeah. just made me think of, uh, one of my favorite Christian songs. It's, it's uh, I forgot the name of it, but it starts off. You bring me the head of my enemies, <laughs> <laughs> which is probably from the Psalms. <laughs> the the violence, the intensity of that. And yeah, you, I think David. That's probably David saying that. And when you think about even the the literalness, because <clears throat> I love to try to interpret the Bible as much as I can literally, although it is poetic. Um, if you think about a battle, you're not going to necessarily see the the beheading of the leader from one battle. You know, when we're talking about something like Asia, a campaign of that size. You're going to start somewhere yeah. and you're going to end somewhere like 3,000 miles away. So for me personally, what how I reconcile, and it's a journey, uh, carrying my cross is... I've taken a lot of therapy sessions in the last five years, probably like 30 plus, which have been great for seeing uh, things, kind of blinders I have. Yeah, blind spots. The uh, great thing that Stacy helped me to come to find was a, and I could probably write a book on this, is uh, the bl blind spot recognition system. So with each therapy session just about I've had, I've been able to see, okay, I keep getting stuck here because of my uh, subconscious belief in that. Mm -hmm. And so being able to see that subconscious belief being exposed consciously, now I could not be stuck in that circle. Yeah. Um, uh, techniques and steps um, and the subconscious, this is a recent one, <laughs> subconscious kind of weapons. So this is something I just recently employed um, are you familiar with ASMR, Jason? Yeah, uh, yeah, the kind of the YouTube phenomenon thing. Yeah, it's a YouTube thing, and so I've used it for to help me sleep, but it's mm -hmm. kind of been random topics where they kind of whisper into your head. But I recently took the habit of uh, getting biblical ASMR, so just somebody whispering yeah. biblical truths, and so I'm kind of using the weapon of the enemy against him, you know. He's in media, he's in marketing, he's in day-to-day -day life, subconsciously controlling an agenda. But if I do that the same for myself consciously, I can now rewrite the wires in my brain that are saying, you know, this is natural. So that's something, or the last thing I want to mention on, on reconciliation for that and, and the progress yeah. of that. Uh, and it's been a pretty exciting journey for me. Um, sometimes it's not that great, but <laughs> to be able to see more clearly, 
is like walking in freedom, right? It's mm-hmm. like finding out you had an extra arm on your rib that you didn't have before. And yeah. now I could be more effective in my business, in relationship, spouse, of course, com- communication, all the above. To wrap up, I wanted to touch on something that I, I know a lot of folks get stuck on. You mentioned a pretty powerful statement of you go from your toxic swamp into your clean well and you get it all swampy. And man, there are a lot of, I would say, church leaders, pastors that go in that toxic pond and go into that well where there's a whole lot more people involved and now they get all swampy. Yeah. And so I, I want to just encourage folks, when you see a pastor like that, stay, flee away. In fact, when you're searching for a church, go to like 10 or 20 until you know for sure there's not swamps, you know, that are being actively taught. <laughs> well, I guess what I would say to that is, um, I mean, there's a lot coming out, like particularly with like the Southern Baptist Convention, just about all the sexual abuse and, and stuff like that. And so I think... Um, I think uh, it's sometimes it may be challenging to even to see that. Um, But I think more realistically, what I would, I would say is if you end up in a church and you, you witness that, that you, that you speak up about it. And, um, and, and if, if there's no rectification, it may be uh, justification to leave. Right. Hey, this is not something I can. Yeah. yeah, Then I've got to go. Yeah. but I think, uh, you know, we're in a, in a sense, we're all in the swamp together. You know, it's just a matter of uh, different levels of it and, and matters. And, and we may be blind, have blind spots to types of swampy things that are that um, we're in, but we don't see. Um, we may, you know, I'll give you an example, like the left and the right politically, they tend to see each other's swampiness, but they don't see their own. Mm-hmm. And so um, so sometimes that can be pretty challenging. But if we if we uh, recognize if we look for the swampiness in ourselves, I think it helps us um, better deal with it. Um, in Cue others. the Michael Jackson song, "Man in the Mirror." Yeah, <laughs> "Man in the Mirror." <laughs> so, I guess I can. Uh, anything? Anything else to wrap us oh, up here? I think we're right on time, man. All right. Well, uh, thanks for your attention today. Yep. I, I thanks for having things upon. No, I was talking to the people, not you, Jason. Ah, uh, uh, no, you. You're, you're, no. <laughs> go away. I'll go ahead and exit stage <laughs> left right now. <laughs> no, I, I pray blessings. <laughs> I pray blessings upon you who's watching because you took time out of your day to watch us go back and forth. And yes, Jason, thank you so much for your wise counsel. It's why you're my BFF, FFFF times infinity. And I look forward to the next episode, brother. All right. Sounds good.